1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Two years ago, Richard Moore, head of MI6, said that China was now the organisation's single greatest priority. Parliamentarians and the British public have been starkly reminded of this by last week's news that a parliamentary researcher had been arrested on suspicion of spying for China. On this episode, we won't be commenting on the ins and outs of that particular case, but talking more generally about Chinese espionage. What forms does it take? What are its goals? And how successful are the Chinese secret services at achieving those? I'm joined by a brilliant and knowledgeable guest. Nigel Inkster is the former Director of Operations and Intelligence for MI6. He has served in Beijing and Hong Kong and is now the Senior Advisor on Cybersecurity and China at the think tank IISS. Nigel, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Um, now, to start with, can we talk about that Richard Moore assessment about China being MI6's single greatest priority? Would you agree with that? And what do you think has led to that assessment?
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, yeah, what Richard Moore says is correct, that uh, China probably does represent the most significant challenge to the UK currently. And the reason for that is quite complex, in fact. A lot of what is causing concern to the UK government at the moment in relation to China is not necessarily activities undertaken by the Chinese intelligence services or just by the intelligence services. There's plenty of that going on, and it's obviously very unwelcome. And one of the big issues with China, or two issues with China, one is their intelligence services can operate on a scale that makes it very, very difficult to produce the resources to monitor all all their activities. That's the first thing. The second thing is that a lot of the activities that they undertake uh, in and of themselves do not seem that malign. But the, the collective impact of what China is doing is very significant. And to my first point, The Chinese intelligence services as such, in particular the Ministry of State Security, which is both an external and an internal service, you know, they are very active in collecting all around the world, you know, pretty much every country of of any consequence or concern. But you also have a lot of covert activity being undertaken by organs of the Chinese state that are not formally designated as the intelligence services. Mm. And I'm thinking here primarily of the United Front Work Department, which undertakes a lot of overt activity to promote China's image and to acquire influence and a positive image for China, but also operates covertly to neutralize China's opponents and bring those who are ambivalent about China to a position of greater sympathy for it. And that makes things a lot more difficult. And I think it, you know, the real point here, uh, Cindy, is that... Uh, China is probably best thought of as an intelligent state in much the same way as the Venetian Republic was at its apogee in, say, the, the 16th century, in the sense that covert activity is kind of baked into the fabric of the state in a way that it simply could not be in a liberal democracy. Covert activity is, is integral, integral. The way the whole system works, and m- many people can find themselves getting involved in some form of covert activity. We've got a Chinese intelligence law that was passed a couple of years ago that uh, requires all Chinese nationals' residents to cooperate with China's intelligence services. As with many Chinese laws, that simply served to formalize a situation that had you know, been in existence you know, since forever. So you know, it, it is, in many ways, best thought of as an all-of-state, if not all-of-nation, approach to intelligence collection and covert activity.
1: I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the various governmental arms that you've talked about and just go into them a bit more. You know, we, we hear a lot about MSS, the Ministry for State Security. Obviously, you've mentioned the United Front. Can you paint an overview of what those various arms look like and what they do?
0: Okay. Well the first thing to say is that the Ministry of State Security for all its described as a ministry is first and foremost an organ of the party and you know its fundamental mission is to preserve and protect the security of the party and ministry of state security cadre officers are sworn to be absolutely loyal to the party um you know that is you know the the, the commitment that they make and that is in many ways, the primary qualification for being accepted in, into the Ministry of State Security: this readiness to, you know, be absolutely loyal to the to the party.
1: In a way that the People's Liberation Army is loyal to the party but not to the state.
0: Exactly. In, in, indeed, yes. And you know, the, uh, the People's Liberation Army, you know, is the armed wing of the Communist Party rather than a national army in the professional sense. So, the Ministry of State Security is a large, sprawling bureaucracy with uh, many departments. Probably about 100,000 uh, officers in total. Nobody knows what the budget is, but it's very significant. China, as you know, spends more on security than it does on national defence. And the national defence budget is not exactly trivial. So we don't know what it is. But uh, they have uh, both a, a domestic and a, an external remit. So you know they are, if you like, a sort of security service come secret police, and they have mm. powers of arrest. And they also undertake... Uh, covert intelligence uh, gathering activities overseas—you know, various forms—going beyond what would be true for the intelligence services of liberal democracy. So, departments—you know, looking at students, uh, you know, dissidents, that sort of thing—and this is not just restricted to China. It, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party thinks that any sign of dissidence, any sign of criticism anywhere in the world constitutes a threat which has to be neutralized. So, they have—you know—all of this. You know, it's the, the, the MSS is divided up into the headquarters in Beijing and a series of provincial uh, state security bureaus, and it is the state security bureaus that do the bulk of the actual operational activity. So, you know, that is essentially how that works. You know, they, they they've got a wide repertoire of ways to be present overseas in embassies in what we call legal residencies but also using slots in Chinese state organizations, state media organizations. You know, there are many different personas they can adopt when uh, operating overseas. So that is the main one, and I think that, that, that is what is causing most of the focus at the moment. Until relatively recently, it was probably the People's Liberation Army Second Department General Staff, 2 PLA for sure, that did quite you know, more intelligence collection overseas than the MSS. But that has changed. Their role is is much more restricted. They've been subsumed uh, within the strategic support force of the PLA. And they are very, very much focused on the purely military side of things now. Uh, We've got the Ministry of Public Security, which is basically a police ministry, but can also operate overseas in certain circumstances. Much as the British Security Service can operate overseas, whilst you know, the British Secret Intelligence Service, I6, can operate in the UK. These borders are, are never hard and fast. Um, so those are the formally designated intelligence organizations. Then you've got these party organizations, the United Front Work Department, which I mentioned, which is also, you know, until relatively recently, wasn't doing very much, has been significantly revamped, had a major injection of funds and purpose. And it's doing a great deal more in the way of both overt and covert influence operations. This extends from everything to things that that, that nobody could reasonably take exception to to influence operations designed to get parliamentarians sympathetic to China elected into the parliaments of different countries. We've seen this in Canada, Australia. Now, apparently, uh, we seem to be heading that way in the United Kingdom if recent news reports are to be received. And then there is the the International Liaison Department of the Communist Party, whose main function is to liaise with fraternal communist parties around the world, which aren't actually that many at the moment. But their remit goes much further than that in terms of the kinds of people they seek to engage with. And here, too, it's very much about influence, telling China's story well, as Xi Jinping has put it, and winning friends and influencing people by whatever means they can.
1: And Nigel, are they successful? It sounds like there's a lot going on here, a lot of chefs cooking right now. Are these, in your professional opinion, would you consider them as elite, successful espionage operations?
0: Well, you know, the China's intelligence services over the last 30 years have um, excelled, I would say, in two areas. One is in terms of securing High-grade military intelligence and particularly um, military equipment from the United States. A lot of that was done using ethnic Chinese employees engaged in in this activity, who were put under various forms of psychological pressure to collaborate. And that has gone very well. We've seen, you know, China acquiring. Uh, at a very rapid pace, a lot of advanced military technologies, things like silent submarine propulsion, radars, um, well, you know, uh, fighter planes. Uh, China's most advanced uh, fighter jet is basically a knockoff clone of the F-35. So that's gone very well. The other thing, of course, that they've done is uh, once they got into the digital age, engage in very wide-ranging cyber intelligence collection operations. And that has kind of opened a lot of doors for them that otherwise would have remained closed. They suddenly, you know, they work out very quickly that using digital means, they could access large troves of information databases that uh, were very useful and were often very poorly uh, defended or, or in some cases not at all. Initially, a lot of this was really... You know, very much low-hanging fruit in terms of the ease with which they were able to do these things. But the other thing I think you know, that has impressed me is their ability to use very intelligent targeting mechanisms. So you, know, you want to get to A, but instead of going straight to A, you go to F, and then you, you know, gradually work your way in. And we've seen them you know, doing targeting trawls on social media sites like LinkedIn, for example, mm-hmm. trawling through you know, millions of entries. Who's out there who looks as if they might have some access to something we want to get at and might be amenable to persuasion?
1: Now, Nigel, obviously, part of the reason of me wanting to do this episode is because of the news last week that an alleged Chinese spy has been unearthed in Westminster. And this, of course, has shocked a lot of people. The man in question denies those charges. He protests his innocence. But nevertheless, it's been a very concerning time. Um, And not least for me personally as well, because I did know him in a professional capacity, which I've written about in the magazine this week. So Nigel, if he is guilty, would that just be the tip of the iceberg when it comes to China's human intelligence operations in foreign capitals?
0: I would say yes. You know, there, there'll be a lot of it going on, as I said, at various different levels, and a lot of it will, you know, at first blush, not necessarily look like espionage. They won't, you know, and Chinese intelligence officers still have, I would say, as a general measure, lower thresholds for what constitutes valuable intelligence than would be the case for the services of developed Western uh, liberal economies. You know, they've got more catching up to do, there are a lot more things put at its most crude. There's a lot more they want to steal from us than we want to steal from them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have, they have that that is a factor. And I think if you were to, you know, achieve a panoptic view of everything the MSS were doing, you would see quite a lot of activity that on the face of it looked quite innocuous. They are paying people to produce reports which contain no classified information. But that is often used as a way of grooming an asset such that when and if they do get access to classified information, they're already in the habit of providing it and they're probably getting paid. And you know, any intelligence officer will tell you that irrespective of the motive of a particular agent, it always is a good idea to pay them because that kind of binds them in. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of that uh, going on. We've seen evidence of the Chinese intelligence services in China targeting young foreign students who've gone there to study and who, on the face of it, have no access to do anything. But they are prepared to invest in such people in the hope that one day they can manoeuvre them into positions of access. And this, again, is something where They differ very much from Western intelligence services who are subject to quite severe resource constraints. The Ministry of State Security appears to have money to burn.
1: And what would motivate someone, uh, you know, who was not born and bred in China, who doesn't have, you know, I can imagine patriotism motivating someone. But what would motivate a non-Chinese citizen to do something like that?
0: Well, I mean, you know, motivations are you know, funny things. Um, you know, there, there are common motivations, but the, the unique combinations are you know, particular to the individual. So you know, everybody is to some degree motivated differently, even though the components of that motivation are always the same. You know, just as you know, the human body is made up of a certain number of parts, you know, they're all the same, but uh, each combines a uniquely individualistic way. So for some, it might just be cynical, of, what the heck, You know, I'll take the money. Others might be persuaded that you know, the Chinese have a case which merits you know, consideration. There may be personal factors involved. They may have fallen for a Chinese girl and, you know, or, or man and want to uh, have a future in China. There are so many different uh, possible motivations. And from what I can see, when it comes to dealing with foreigners, Unlike the Russians, who can be fairly brutally coercive in these approaches, the Chinese always seem to focus on positive motivation, which is, you know, always a more effective way of doing it. You know, if you're a recruitment agent under duress, you know, you almost by definition cannot rely on that agent to deal straight with you. But if you're playing on positive motivations, it's far more likely that you will be able to, and that's what I think the Chinese do. And again, I've seen an intriguing combination of very intellectually agile and intelligent uh, assessment of the individual, sometimes combined with a certain amount of, um, how should I put it, uh, a lack of cultural awareness. So they don't always kind of read the situation quite right. But what What do you mean by that? What I've always seen, I think there is a tendency also to be too instrumental uh, when it comes to reading people.
1: In terms of how Chinese handlers deal with their agents, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll just make one qualification. There was a recent case when this MSS officer uh, went to uh, Belgium to collect uh, what he thought was intelligence from a source in one of the US um, aerospace companies. And he was arrested, uh, extradited to uh, the United States and is now uh, be- serving a 20-year prison sentence for espionage, so, this uh, was Xu Yanjun. And you know, when when he went to Brussels, uh, how should I put it? it? It was more Inspector Clouseau than James Bond. Let's put it that way. You know, when he was arrested, he had his uh, work phone with huge amounts of uh, data about, uh, I think it was the Jiangsu State Security Bureau, which he absolutely should not have had on his person. And, you know, essentially, he seems to have broken every rule in the trade drive manual. So we're not seeing a a purely consistent level of force. And
1: you mentioned James Bond I think people have this idea of someone who's a professional spy but from what you've said you know if it's a kind of all nation effort it does feel like often people just get recruited on almost ad hoc basis there might be a few documents all over time but it's you know they they're not trained to be intelligence agents they're just simply recruited on missions.
0: It might be an academic with a particular expertise who has an opportunity to travel to the West and see some material or talk to some people that otherwise would not be uh, accessible. And that person will simply go and do it. They won't get any training at all. I mean, there's another area where the Chinese have been very, you know, behaving very interestingly in the United States. It's quite clear now that they have been getting ordinary Chinese tourists and sending them to military locations around the. US, basically see how far they can get.
1: And sometimes they can get quite far.
0: Yes, indeed. yeah well indeed. It's, it's rather worrying in fact. But initially this looked like the efforts of you know enthusiastic amateurs, but it now seems clear that this was a much more structured effort that war was centrally planned, centrally directed.
1: So, when these people say, "Oh, we're just tourists, we accidentally were, we were looking for the McDonald's, I think one of them said you, you don't That's right, That right yes,
0: And of course, if you look for the nearest McDonald's, it could well be on the nearest military base.
1: But you don't buy that they were innocuous.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of them were innocuous, but some of them you know clearly were not. you know they, they, they were <laughs> under instructions you know to go to the base, trying to get in and report back on how far they got, what the restrictions were, how well they were implemented, you know whether any loopholes, et cetera, et cetera. And this is and then, again, you. This China can do this because they've got the manpower. Mm.
1: And Nigel, when it comes to influencing opinion, then one of the goals that you've mentioned, the secret services have, you know, it doesn't seem to me sitting here in London that they're doing that well. If that is one of their goals. Obviously, it comes into a lot of things because there's also diplomacy, public diplomacy. There's also China's actual policies and actions. But it doesn't really seem like... I mean, tell me more. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I, I would agree. I think particularly when it comes, again, to the Western liberal democracies, they're not doing very well. You know, they've shown themselves to be culturally tin-eared. They are subject to constraints, which mean they have to say certain things in certain ways for the domestic audience. One finds that all Chinese propaganda tends to suffer from the fact that it is aimed primarily at a domestic, not uh, not an external audience, so it often jars. But I would say in other parts of the world, in what we should really stop calling the Global South, developing world was much more complicated than that, the Chinese narrative plays much more effectively. You find in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, Chinese TV programs, dubbed into whatever language, are are widely watched. A lot of people go to China for education or military training or police training or something like that. And these efforts, I think, do have a significant payoff. I agree with you, in the West, it's more difficult. But I think the one area where China is not doing badly is in, in what I would call elite capture. Using uh, business interests mm-hmm. uh, to exercise and gain influence, and elite capture can you know, can take a number of forms. We see in the UK, for example, you know senior retired figures being offered lucrative c- sinecures in Chinese organisations. Then, of course, you know everybody until very recently wanted to be part of this gathering rush to invest in the Chinese economy. So, you know, the private sector generally. I think proved to be quite a uh, felicitous hunting ground for uh, China's influence peddlers. That's starting to change now as you know, those those dynamics uh, shift and uh, de-risking, if not decoupling, is, is starting to gather momentum. But in those areas, I think yes, they have been you know, they've been more effective. I mean, I don't think, for example, putting uh, China Daily in every copy of the Daily Telegraph has been proven particularly successful, given that China Daily has a serious claim to be considered the most boring newspaper on the planet. Very much so. Some things work, some things don't. Mm. But the point is, they never stop. They keep on trying. If something isn't working, they'll come up with something else.
1: Okay, and Nigel, I think listeners will probably be like me right now, which is very concerned about all of these attempts, and as you say, they keep trying. What about efforts to counter Chinese espionage then? And I I don't want you to obviously divulge any MI6 secrets or anything like that, but I think there are certain tactics that we have seen playing out, for example, leaking to the media. Perhaps you can talk about that. And also using things like legal force. I wondered if you can talk about the difference between the Official Secrets Act being replaced by the National Security Act as well.
0: Okay, well, on the first point, I mean, I think you know, as well as I do, that the Chinese Communist Party is incapable of being shamed. So putting things into the public domain will not cause the Chinese Communist Party to say, oh, my God, we are busted, you know, we'll have to do better in the future. But it does serve, I think, as as, as a useful exercise in alerting the British public um, to the reality of this issue. And I think there is a growing imperative to do that, because there are lots of people in a country like the United Kingdom who are engaged with China, don't speak any Chinese, you know, can't decipher the code, so to speak, and are susceptible to being exploited by China. Their naivety or lack of uh, uh, you know, situational awareness is susceptible to exploitation. So I think there is an imperative necessity to educate uh, the wider public, in what it is they're dealing with. Because China, you know, if they can't get headway with a central government, will often go to a regional level, talk to a local government, where they will probably receive a more sympathetic uh, reception, simply because there's nobody there who understands what's really going on. So you know, they, this kind of thing needs to be addressed. You know, some universities uh, have been, I think, somewhat naive in terms of the kind of research projects they've uh, become entangled with China in. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but I think you mm-hmm. the, the, there is need for much more discrimination and situational awareness than has been the case. So from that point of view, I think it has some utility, but to, um, I would say to be used with caution because you don't want to overdo it or wear out your welcome, and you also don't want to create a kind of witch-hunt atmosphere in which anybody of ethnic Chinese um, origin, in which I include every member of my family bar myself, one clearly does not want this kind of situation to arise, a sort of yellow barrel witch hunt kind of thing. So that's the first point. Um, uh, On your second point on the legal issue, until very recently... The only legislation in the UK governing espionage was the Official Secrets Act, which had been developed uh, in the context of World War I, when espionage tended to be all about military secrets, you know, the secret plan for the Kaiser's uh, mobilisation of a million troops by rail, that sort of thing. I mean, espionage has moved on a lot uh, since then. The Official Secrets Act didn't even think about issues like covert influence. And the point about the Official Secrets Act was that in practice, unless you got a confession or, and that is unimaginably rare, sort of caught somebody red-handed with a bundle of secrets in one hand and a bundle of rubles in the other, um, it was really, really difficult to secure a prosecution, you know. It was possible to prosecute civil servants who leaked secrets. But if it was ordinary members of the public who um, passed on classified information, the Crown had to prove damage. And in these situations, it's not difficult to see that that could be very difficult. Well, yes, you handed over this information to country the, the agents of Country X. And what has happened? War has not been declared. You know, we're still, you know, we're still here. You know, no harm appears to have been done. So the Official Secrets Act, in, in short, was simply no longer fit for purpose in the 21st century, in the light of all the things I've just been describing. So it's been replaced by the National Security Act, which makes it an offence, a criminal offence, to be an undisclosed agent of a foreign regime. So if you're working for the intelligence services of Country X and you do not declare the fact, that is a crime. It it draws on uh, US legislation that's been around for a long time, which makes it an offence to not register as being the agent of a foreign state. And that doesn't just include secret agents, but anyone who is acting for a foreign state. Um, So it it creates more clarity, and it also makes it easier to secure convictions in the sort of very grey areas that I've just been talking about.
1: And by working for, you mean that, exchange of money, which seals the deal.
0: That is an interesting point. I'm, to, to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what the criteria are. That would certainly get you there. But I think you know, if, if you were knowingly working for one of these organisations and passing them information, knowing that that's what you were doing, that, that would probably be, mm. you know, my guess is that would be enough to secure a conviction, provided the dr- evidence there.
1: And Nigel, from what you're saying, then, since the alleged spies in this case were arrested in March under the Official Secrets Act, not the National Security Act, would you say that conviction is incredibly hard to be successful?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in the circumstances that the Times describe, and you know, I, I honestly fail to see how you could secure a conviction, which is why I, I suspect there is probably more to this than than the, than the Times has reported. But you know, I really don't know. Why.
1: Mm. and finally Nigel then you mentioned this witch hunt atmosphere and I have to say I am very personally concerned about this obviously as someone who is Chinese ethnic and someone who you know, advocates for engagement with China, someone who doesn't think that having business-to-business links is necessarily a problem. I've also written a lot about Chinese students being in the UK, receiving, you know, kind of prejudiced views on them and on their presence. And I've also talked to Chinese ethnic people who are trying to get into politics in this country, who are spooked by the news also last week of these two candidates being taken off of the list for the Tory party because of fears. And, you know, this person tells me they don't think that they'll ever be considered because they're not a spy, but you know they are going to be regarded with high suspicion. So, what is the takeaway from this, and how do we prevent ourselves from being naive, but also not McCarthyist? What is the right balance? How do we deal with that?
0: I think that is actually really quite difficult, Cindy. And as I said, you know, I, I too personally have skin in this game. My wife is ethnic Chinese. My two children are half Chinese. My two grandchildren are three quarters Chinese. You know, so I do care about this. And just in case you're wondering, none of them are a spike China. <laughs> Quite the reverse, I might even say. But yeah, again, I think you know, this, this is an area where there has to be some sets of nuance, and government has to take the lead. Government has, you know, to be proactive in setting out what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And I think you know, the red lines, so to speak, need to be tightly drawn. I mean, be absolutely clear about what is not acceptable and operate on the, you know, the common law judicial principle that, you know, anything not explicitly forbidden is permitted.
1: And what about for people listening then, you know, when they encounter Chinese colleagues or Chinese students, or if they're in making, you know, encounter Chinese people who are in politics uh, or, you know, people who say things more aligned to what Beijing would want. Innocent until proven guilty, or should people always be keeping a cautious eye?
0: People can have different points of view. I mean, you know, I I personally think that some of the things said about uh, China by British politicians, some of the uh, approaches that are advocated are frankly either immature or ignorant or or downright counterproductive. And I'm not afraid to say so, and that should not be a criminal offence. You know, you can disagree. You know, you, you can take different points of view. It is perfectly legitimate to think that we should be seeking more engagement with China. I mean, for heaven's sake, the United States government takes that position for all the activities that they've undertaken, technical controls, decoupling, you know and so on and so forth. They've sent a kind of armada of uh, top-level officials to Beijing in the recent months to to maintain contact and engagement. So if it's good enough for the United States, I think it ought to be good enough for us.
1: Nigel no Inksa, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers.
0: My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers, wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first